Hello, and welcome to Get Wrecked. I am your host, Don Falgu. And I am your other host, Stephen Falgu. Get Wrecked is our occasional podcast where every week I recommend something to Don and they recommend something to me, and then we talk about it. Yes. And, and today's episode is the space. That's true. The final frontier, space. But no Star Trek ever. We'll never talk about it. It's never going to happen. It's a personal vendetta of ours that we never revealed until now. Right. It killed our parents. Exactly. Star Trek. And so... The media conglomerate Star Trek killed our parents. But not Halo. And honestly, honestly, even by admitting that on air, we're now at risk. At risk of what? We will not tell you, because if we tell you, we will be further at risk. We're just at risk in general, so it's up to you to speculate. I understand that our viewers do like specificity, you know? They like us to be very clear so that they can put it into the wiki pages. Uh, but unfortunately, today's going to be all about vague posting. Um, yeah, and if there's one thing that I would say sums up Get Wrecked very well, it's incredibly specific. But, Almost hyper-specific. But not today. But that's just how space is, you know? It's so vast. There's no. How can you be specific about space? There's so, yeah, so much to talk about and look at and think about. So vast and vague. I watched a video about space, and it was like, look, here you are, and then it kept zooming out, and it was like, you can't even comprehend it, so don't even try. And I was like, okay. And I've never thought about it since, until that moment where I just told you that I taught about, <laughs> thought about it. Well, you're going to be thinking about it a lot today. This, is, this episode is going to really put your life into a cosmic perspective. You're going yeah, to and, see how small you are in relation to the vast cosmos. Yeah, and the only the other thing that I would say is that not only is this episode about space, it's about historical and accurate depictions of space. Yes, both the past and the future. Yeah, exactly. Um, so a very cosmic episode. So I hope you're prepared for that. But it will also be very vague. So you know we'll 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 toe the toe the line. But that's what the cosmos is. So anyway, I think uh, with that said, we should get into what I recommended to you, Stephen. Yeah, let's do it. So last episode, I recommended to Stephen the 2007 hit video game Halo Three. Uh, this is of course the, third. the historical documentary. I'm sorry. Yes, the the um, the biopic Halo Three of a john 117 master chief halo master chief <laughs> right and, um, uh, first name john last name master chief halo master chief um, <laughs> and um and um we have previously discussed the first game in the halo franchise halo combat evolved uh we are coming back to the franchise for the third mainline entry i believe the third entry in general though there was that spin-off game and i don't know when that one happened but um this was not a launch title, but basically a launch title for the Xbox 360 in the sense that it launched the Xbox 360 into greater success and stardom. Um, and I will leave it to Steven to talk about it. Yeah, I will just say as a quick aside, interesting and perhaps quite fitting given 
the where we are now, but Call of Duty 2 was a launch title for the 360. And this game came after. Wait, Call of Duty 2 uh, or Call of Duty 3? Would have been 3, right? I think. Or maybe yeah, the not. one before the one before Modern Warfare. Yeah, the one Call that was still Yeah. Yeah. Um anyway, so we'll, I think we'll start with the campaign and then talk a little bit about the multiplayer. The campaign, I played through it. I will say it is, you know, they really, let's say, rehashed some, if not very many elements from the first campaign. Uh, some in a very overt way. Now... You could look at those maybe as the whole thing coming full circle, almost as if it were a Halo. But I look at it as a little cheap, to be honest. And I will say the other thing about just generally the Halo campaigns, I don't know if I talked about it so much in the first one, but I definitely felt it in this one, is that it's quite slow. Like, even when it's fast, it feels really slow. And this one specifically really likes to make you slow down even more because there are like three different elements at any given time that might force your character to move in slow motion. Sometimes Ghost Cortana is talking to you and you have to move in slow motion. Sometimes the Flood Hive Mind is talking to you and you have to move in slow motion. And all of that just kind of really drags the experience down. I will say there are some incredible missions. Pretty much all the missions that have to do with vehicles. Especially the ones where you get a scorpion. Those are really fun. Uh, but a lot of the missions are just a drag. It's like go to point A, wipe, like run through a tower that looks exactly the same as the one you just ran through. Do something. Go back up go to point B and do the same thing all over again. And that repetition just really slows the whole pace down. Now, I will say the ba ba da ba we all know it. It's back, and it's just as good as before, but it is literally the exact same ending as Halo 1. <laughs> but it's still incredible. So that is a moment I definitely highlight. I will also mention I played... So I have played Halo campaigns co-op, and that is a very fun experience. And not only have I played them co-op, I played them on the hardest difficulty, and it is a chore and a grind. But the progression is actually quite fun, and like getting over those hurdles can be exciting. This time I played at the very lowest difficulty just to basically speed run through the campaign to get a sense of the story. And that's actually kind of fun, too. It's like a whole different experience. You really feel like a superhuman god. You're just, like, running around and nothing can basically touch you. Uh, the final thing I wanted to mention, the thing that I really wished there was here, it's like, okay, we have, the pendulum has swung too far when it's come to guidance in games. But in this campaign, I will say, I have no problem generally with a game that doesn't give you like 
like literally a HUD indicator, this is where you should go. Um, but to my knowledge, there wasn't even necessarily anything you could do to figure out where your next checkpoint was. Just if you took too long, it would show you. And the other thing that I would say that really made it even worse was I felt like a lot of times environmental elements actually pushed you to go one way that was the wrong way. In fact, I remember the mission where you're in the Africa base and you're trying to like go and save everyone on the Africa base because the aliens found you. There's ver one very specific moment that I remember. You get out into this hallway, or it's like a runway, basically. And there are all these little, like, bug things. Like these bug enemies. You get out there, and immediately they all fly from right to left. So my general sensibilities are like, okay, the game is pushing me to go to the left. Like, the, all the enemies are going that way. I gotta chase them down. That must be where the action is. But no, actually, the left is a dead end. And not only is it a dead end, but then there's also, like, an Easter egg at the end of the hallway where, like, two Marines are talking to each other on either side of the door. And it was kind of fun, but I was like, what is the point of this? And now I'm just lost. And then I had to wait for the thing to show up. And the other thing is it's, like, not only... Is it hard to find where you're supposed to go? But a lot of times the place where you're supposed to go is like one tiny little crevice and you have to like, you know, manage your way through a door, but it's not even very clear where that door is. That really bogged the experience down for me a lot. A lot of stuff to hit on there. I mean, I, I will say in, um, in, um, in stark contrast to what Steven said, I definitely think that Halo 3 is like, if not the best, like one of the best shooter campaigns that I've ever played. Um, I felt like there's a lot of games, especially from the era that this game came out, where the, uh, a lot of shooter games anyway, where the goal seems to be to basically give you this like grandiose experience. Um, you think of like Call of Duty, um, Modern Warfare, which came out around the same time, and the games after that, and other Halo games. I mean, that's always been the thing. I mean, even with the first two Halo games, I'd say that's, like, kind of the goal of the campaign. But Halo 3 is the one where it really worked, I think. Um, there's a bunch of reasons for that. One, um, it is true that the game uh, does a lot of the things that the first game did again, and that uh, the finale to this game, you're driving a warthog around as things are blowing up, just like in the first game. But what I kind of like about that, oddly enough, is that I hated the first Halo games campaign. Like, I thought it was just terrible. Um, like, and the only things that were good about it were kind of good if I looked at it, like, in context and said, like, okay, well, it's a console shooter from 2001, right? Uh, and then you could see a lot of positives. But actually playing the game now, I don't see any reason to do that. Halo 3 comes along, you know, uh, six years later and does hit a lot of the same beats, but it actually makes them work this time. Like, this feels like what Halo should have always been, what it was always leading up to, and even the games that have come after it that I've played, like Reach or ODST or um, 
at least ODST is different, but Reach or Halo 4 in particular, it feels like they are now trying to grasp at the greatness of this game. Um, it, it's it's sort of like a, a, a Halo triangle where everything leads up to three, except the first half of the triangle is very, very slanted uh, because both one and two have many, many faults. And the next part is better until you get to four where it's worse. Okay, that was kind of a bad... Uh, way to explain it but anyway my point is that halo 3 feels like the pinnacle of the franchise the score and the music in the game is one of the biggest things that i think makes it stick um i think the overall progression of each mission is amazing though i'll definitely agree that like the map design the layout of the maps can be pretty weird um and the exact same thing you mentioned with the bug mission where you found the easter egg before you found the way you were supposed to go that also happened to me um which is definitely unfortunate. And it's, I think shooter games have leaned into this even more since this point, like using the HUD to just make the player not see anything interesting and only go the way they're supposed to go. And there are benefits to that. I mean, the main benefit to that is that you can have level design that's pretty much exactly what Halo 3 has, but you won't get lost. And that is definitely a benefit. It's not nice to get lost uh, while playing through a campaign. But what I will say I do like, though is that the environments are so detailed and beautiful and great in this game that, you know, getting lost outside of battles definitely sucks. But when you are in the middle of those battles and there's so many ways to approach them and so many ways to go, it really, really enhances the experience of playing the game. Um, maybe a, a better thing for them to have done would have been to allow the player to get a little lost when there's a big firefight going on, but maybe in the moments where they're supposed to just be going to the next place, you know, make things a little bit more linear. And they failed a little bit in that. That's definitely true, um, because I agree with what you said about that. But aside from that, I think the pacing of this game is spectacular. Uh, like, it's a pretty short campaign. You can run through it fairly quickly. The main length of it is just going to come down to how long it takes you to fight the enemies, and that's going to come down to what difficulty you're playing on. Um, but the actual way that the missions are structured and the way the story is structured is just super great. Like, I don't feel like this game really has a low point. Uh, maybe the only part that I can remember really not liking was a section where you were fighting, um, I forget the name of the vehicles, but there's those giant vehicles that you have to take out their legs and you have to take out, you have to go inside of it and blow it up. I forget what they're called, but there was one section where you have like a pelican and you have to take down like two of them. It was a little annoying, but... Like, that's kind of the only part of this game I can remember, like, not really enjoying. Um, there's so many, like, great story beats. Uh, well, I shouldn't say story beats because it's a Halo story. It's kind of lame, but that's just how it always is. Um, but I should say, like, just, like, game beats where, like, major things are happening and the music is kicking up and, like, all these enemies are running out. And it feels so grand and cinematic, but it's not really that much of a set piece game at the same time. Um it's not throwing a bunch of set pieces in your face. It's just giving you really great battles constantly and interesting fights uh, and interesting map layouts to tackle those fights from different angles and playing the score at just the right moments to make everything feel so epic. Um, one of the best moments uh, in the game, I think, is when um, it's after one of the most major story events happens and somebody dies. Um the the uh, the flood spoiler the floods in Halo Three I don't know I'm trying to avoid spoilers but whatever uh, the flood comes in and kills all these enemies for you like working for you on your side as you run back across a bridge that you had to fight really hard to get across the first time 
it is just amazing. <laughs> and there's so many cool little setups like that. And I think that the moments that the game borrows or practically steals from the first game, all of them come out so much better in this one. Um, like that warthog sequence at the end of one is so bad. Like it might've felt cool at the time, but the vehicle controls of Halo are really, cl well, I should, well, they're not clunky. They're kind of the opposite. They're very loose and weird. Um, and so in order to make a, an epic vehicle run work in Halo, it has to be super, super um, laid out in a way where it's almost guaranteed you're not going to feel that clunkiness. And while I can't say that 100% about Halo 3's section, it definitely works out a lot better than 1's. Um, and same with kind of everything. I also like a lot in this game, uh, one thing that does make it feel very different than the last two. Uh, in 2, they introduced the Brutes, which were like another um, alien species who are also evil or some shit. Uh, and anyway, in three, the stories change so that the elites are actually on your side and you're no longer fighting the elites. You're only fighting the grunts and the brutes. And I think the brutes are actually a really fun enemy. They're fought pretty differently than elites are in that it's not like it's still about taking out their shields and then killing them. But now it's there's a lot more focus on getting headshots, uh, which is nice. It makes them feel more different to the grunts than even the elites did. And they're very fun to fight and they're hard, but they're not like ridiculous unless, of course, you're playing a stupid high difficulty. Um, and I think they're a really good enemy, brings a lot of good weapons to the game, uh, and a lot of, uh, just a, a lot of different feeling battles than the last two, which is the last thing I really like. And I want to say one more thing that I think is awesome about the Halo 3 campaign compared to the last two, and this is awesome about Halo 3 all around, I'm sure we'll get to it in general with the multiplayer as well, but Halo 3 adds so many things to Halo that it's almost, it's like too much to remember at all, um, which sounds like a bad thing. Uh, but honestly, all of it's just so cool and fun to use. Like, you get all of the elite weapon, or sorry, the, the Covenant weapons. Um, you get all the brute weapons, all of the marine weapons, all the vehicles from the other games, but now even more, because you get these extra brute vehicles, um, this cool, like, wheel thing with a big wheel. It's like a motorcycle. Um, and um, And then you also get these specials, which are like... Um, like a shield or um, or lifts or drains or healing sections, which are kind of like they work in a radius. Um, you get those in addition, and you also get new grenade types. There's like so many things that they added, but playing through the campaign with all of these options gives you like even more ways to tackle each level, um, more so than any Halo game ever before, um, which I think really uh, enhanced it uh, for me. I do say what, and this is not necessarily just true of Halo 3, but it feels more true here. One thing that I really enjoy about the campaign is how alive the world feels. I mean, you will get situations where you've backed a couple grunts into a corner, and obviously the grunts are still super fun, especially when you kill the brute that's with them, and they're all running around and scrambling. But then also when they see you, they still call you demon. And those sorts of little, you know, those little things are pretty fun, as well as, like, interactions you might have with Marines or Sar Sergeant Johnson or whomever. Those are really nice. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I agree, like, all the weapons here are super fun and that you can dual-wield a lot of that stuff and pull up turrets and all of that. Like, getting onto, you mentioned, like, the Scarabs, those Scarab missions. Getting onto the Scarabs 
undocking one of the turrets from the scarabs and just running through and blowing it up. That's a ton of fun. So there's a lot of stuff there. And that they let you do some flight missions in this one too that don't feel as clunky as the flight missions in Halo 1. Or even if I think back to Halo 2, there's some flight missions there that are just a complete drag. But these flight missions are actually pretty succinct and interesting. Yeah, I just think other like... than that, I'm just trying to think of like other than that, it's like I don't understand a Halo. I, I'll say generally, you know, I feel like this game still falls into the trap of like a lot of times it feels like it's trying to be bigger than itself. Like a lot of the dialogue here is just kind of like nonsense at the end of the day. Oh yeah. Like especially some of that stuff that like Cortana is telling you, it's like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> it's it's lore vomit. Yeah, it's it's, like, it's definitely lore vomit. Things read books to understand them, and yeah, it's yeah. Um, but I don't understand a Halo. Oh, I will say uh, one thing I wanted to mention because this was like a big piece of criticism back in the day. So, Halo One, Halo Two, people, fans of the series had been clamoring forever to go back to Earth. Like, that was a big thing. They wanted to go back to Earth and have Earth missions, and finally, Halo Three delivered. Although not really, I would say. Like, I still, I definitely can get a sense for that criticism that it's like, you know, they told everyone that they deliver on that promise. And it's like, they have no, you know, it's like they, the fans have no right to demand the structure or anything like that. But like the marketing, so much of the marketing was like, one, finish the fight. That was the big one. And then everyone made fun of that once Halo 4 came out. Uh, but the other one was like, you know, going back to Earth. And really, it's like a, a mission two missions are on earth yeah and then one's kind of like a rehash like you just kind of backtracking after the flood lands um so yeah I, I definitely see that although it doesn't really bother me that much honestly it's kind of like you know it all makes sense within the context that's like more of a problem back in the day when the game launched like that sounds like a marketing issue because that's not even so i didn't even know about that i know the finish the yeah. fight campaigns but like for me like i don't care you know <laughs> but yeah um but yeah like i like, why is, why is a Halo look like that, you know? Like, isn't it just a big super weapon? But then they always land on it. It's like, oh, look, it's got, like, mountains for some reason. Like, they built a whole ecosystem on it, even though it's, like, a giant super ring weapon. That is the one thing I will say. This is something that carries over to 3. Um, this is just a problem with Halo in general. I think Halo, or Bungie, let's say. Bungie was amazing at, like, iconography, you know, like, ev so many things in Halo are so iconic, you can think of them and remember them, like, just like that. Like, the look of a Halo, even. I mean, it, the games can look so amazing and grand, but there's, like, so little logic to it. Like, they they have all these amazing ideas for, like, visuals, and then they have to come up with how it's going to make sense story-wise. And that's where it's just like, what? But the thing is, for me... I felt that way in every single Halo game I've ever played. So it's just kind of been something I've like accepted at this point. Halo 3 has the problem the exact same way any other Halo game does. Um, well, maybe a little bit less than Reach, where Reach really got full of itself and tried to make like an amazing demanding story and it didn't work. I will say, at least with Halo 3 and with like the first two Halo games, is that the story, you know, it happens in the cutscenes, but other than that, you don't need a reason. <laughs> it's just cool and fun and it's cool. And, like, you get an idea that, like, there's some kind of world-ending thing going on, but who cares? Um, and, like, 
I kind of feel the same way in this game. It's sort of the same same thing. I think that's all I have to mention about the campaign. You want to move on to the multiplayer? Sure. Okay, so by far and away, I would say this is the Halo that I had spent the most time with in multiplayer. Very, or Halo 2 comes very close, and if I really think about it, might still have edged it out a little bit, but this Halo multiplayer is just so iconic. It is so much fun. Still to this day, you know, you and I played some matches. It is still a blast to play. There's definitely a lot of modern stuff that I feel like generally Halo is missing. And I think they tried to add that later, and I actually feel like it fell flat on its face. Now, I know Infinite is trying to incorporate some of those modern sensibilities. You know, things like um, look and shoot. Things like being able to sprint at all. Some of that stuff. Um, so I'll be interested to see how they kind of incorporate that. But... Even taking that all away, Halo multiplayer still is just so much fun, all of that excluded. You know, like, I feel like just at its bare bones, Halo is just such a simple, clean multiplayer. You have three things to worry about. You have an opponent's shield, you have your own shield, and you have two health bars, and that's about it. Now, there's, you have the Trinity, which Halo made iconic for so long, and then COD completely changed everything, but you have shoot, melee, grenade. And it's like any interaction that you have with another player on a Halo multiplayer map is you are like balancing those things against the opponent. And it almost becomes like a chess match in a way. Like, how are you, when are you going to throw grenades? When are you going to shoot? When are you going to melee? Because all of those things are very important in the interaction that you have one-to-one -one against somebody. And the other thing that uh, I had mentioned while we were playing too is it's like, I don't know of any other game where I legitimately play every mode. Like, I have no problem playing any Halo mode. Now, I will say... Like, with that being said, I'm not the biggest fan of any of the objective modes. I feel like a lot of times they can take a little too long. But even those I find in Halo to be very fun. You know, just like CTF or planting bombs, those sorts of things. Skulls is actually super fun. I like Skulls a lot. And then just generally, like, Slayer, Team Slayer are, are great. And the map variety here is something that's... Um, you know, they've taken all the best lessons that they learned across two other halo games and applied them there are some stinker maps not all of them are great but so many of them are so much fun and offer a very different gameplay experience map to map plus on top of that you have the basically like map creator mode and halo 3 kind of pioneered in a way i would say modding to consoles because obviously at the time it was essentially non-existent, but by creating a map maker mode and then also Bungie highlighting uh, player-made modes, you kind of have this like modding community that sprung up even on console, which was kind of unheard of at the time. Uh, not entirely unheard of, but pretty much unheard of at the time. So even getting in and like making your own maps or making your own gameplay modes, uh, we played Griffball. Which is which was basically a you know player made mode, 
And there was a couple other ones too. Like I think of it originally shoddy sniper was a, was a player mode. Zombies was a player mode that really took off, which is also a ton of fun. And just like all of that is really, really fun to play. Yeah. And it just like one thing that does make Halo three is can't, uh, well, Halo three as an entire game different than the last two, but um, especially the multiplayer and stuff is that the act, the way the guns work is different in Halo three um, than every other Halo game to my knowledge. Um, the weapons aren't hit scan in Halo three. They're projectile. Um, so you actually have to lead your shots uh, guns like the assault rifle and any like burst weapons become a little bit more difficult to use. They become a little bit more ineffective than they are in other games um, because the spread actually really matters. Um, and personally, now I understand that they took this out after Halo 3 and that it isn't something a lot of people necessarily like, but personally, I think it makes the gunplay even better. Um, it makes using guns like the assault rifle feel so much more like um, um, so much more um, the words escaping me so I'll say animalistic <laughs> I don't know it's like they don't have the, they have like this crazy punch this kind of wild unpredictability to them that they don't have in other games uh, in other Halo games which makes them really fun uh, and it doesn't overcomplicate the gameplay like you might think that it would um, It things are st things still stay like super simple but it just adds a tiny bit of complexity that I think is really nice. Um, add to that things like um, those those specials that I talked about in the campaign, like the bubble shield and the lift and things like that. Those are also in the multiplayer, and they just add one little extra thing um, to Halo to spice it up a little bit. And while it's not huge, um, it does add something to the gameplay for sure. I also think it's interesting how um, these items work equally for teammates yourself and the enemy so if you use something like the uh, healing item which you throw down and within its radius it constantly gives you health and shield um you can throw that down for yourself but if an enemy gets in there with you they're going to get the same effects from that um, item as you are uh, same thing works in the reverse for the power drain which takes away your shield when you're in its radius if you throw it at say a teammate and an enemy who are fighting it will drop both of their shields and it would drop yours. Uh, and it's just, it's things like that that make it, they add a little bit of, um, like you said, it's like a chess match. They, they add a little bit more to think about in each uh, fight. And yet what's cool about Halo fights that even though there is more to think about when you enter them than there is in something like Call of Duty, they still tend to go by really fast. Um, and a lot of what I'm saying applies to other games as well. It's just that Halo 3 adds these little things that makes it even more interesting. Uh, and same as other games, you know, weapon choice also matters a ton. A lot of Halo multiplayer is about finding power weapons. Um, whichever team gets control of those tends to have a better time. Um, works the same way in this game as well, but with just so many more options than the last two games once again. Um, and even just having little things in there like the dual wield, which carries over from Halo 2, there's even more options with that now. Even more gun combinations you can use. And vehicle play is as fun as ever. So it really just takes everything great about the, the last two... Multi well, sorry. Everything great about the last multiplayer. And it, um, it enhances it. And uh, while I will say on the map point, I don't think Halo maps tend to really be great. Uh, even the best ones... Th well... There are some that are, but it's just usually most Halo maps are okay at best. 
Um, but Halo 3 definitely has the best lineup of the first three games, like by far. Uh, it's not even close. There aren't as many maps that are just awful. Um, and there are some really, really great uh, iconic ones as well. So I think it just does a better job with that uh, all around. Yeah, and we already kind of talked about the weapons, and you have as well, but some of those weapons coming into multiplayer matches are super fun. Like the hammer, it's a new weapon in this game. Playing around with that in multiplayer is a blast. And the Spartan laser, which is just atrocious, just an absolutely terrible weapon. But when you get a kill with it, it feels incredible. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously there's all the mainstays, the rocket launcher, doing rocket jumps and those sorts of things. The sword coming back from Halo 2, which was one of the best parts of Halo 2. So there's just so much here that not only they added, but also were able to take from, you know, all the best parts of the last games that really just make it a super fun experience. That's all I have to say about Halo 3. If you're done, we can wrap it up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'll just start. I'll say, I mean... I recommend going back to it. I think that the Master Chief Collection has made it easier than ever to go back to it. Now you can play it with mouse and keyboard, which still feels kind of weird to me. Uh, I don't know. I don't even feel like I really need to split them. I think generally Halo 3 for me is is an 8. I think age hasn't been necessarily especially kind to it, but it is still easily my favorite Halo game, bar none. Um, closely followed by Halo 2, but... If I'm going to go back to a Halo game, it's definitely Halo 3. They added too much stuff past this that I feel like really bogged the experience down. Halo 3, to me, just feels very clean, very easy to pick up, very easy to play. Uh, the campaign, while I think it does have its issues, I still enjoyed my time with it. And then the multiplayer, I just still, you know, every now and then go back to and just pick up a couple matches. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would give Halo 3 a 9. I'll go one step further because for me, I think this campaign is incredible and I think the multiplayer is incredible. Um, it's not flawless. And given that there are so many um, additions to the gameplay, there are things that don't translate as well. Um, but I think it has the best Halo campaign. Um, though I admit I haven't played five. <laughs> I'm going to say it's probably the best Halo campaign. Um, and... Uh, Again, one of the best shooter campaigns. I mean, in terms of like a, a shooter game that focuses more on multiplayer than campaign, this is the best like campaign in a game like that that I've ever played for sure. Um, you know, overall FPS games ever, it's way up there for sure. Um, I think it essentially gives you the Halo game that Halo always wanted to be. Um, it picks things up from the last two games, brings them in better than ever. It visually, we didn't even talk about this, but visually this game still holds up. Um, when you play the campaign, it holds up less for sure because you have the, uh, the, the, the character models and stuff which look pretty bad now. But the overall aesthetic and like surfaces and lighting and stuff, it looks almost modern. Like it's a really good looking game and the halos that have come since, aside from improving again character models where you you can see people's faces and lip syncing and stuff like that. Other than that, they haven't really improved that much. I mean, this game set a standard and it looks so much better than any other game console game from 2007 that like I can think of right now. It's kind of amazing. And that visual fidelity also enhances the, um, the campaign a lot as well. 
but then yeah the multiplayer is just is just so good um and it's it's a game that's well known for its custom games which uh, you can still play on mcc and they're great um it's just a really amazing game and uh, i definitely recommend picking up a master chief collection for this game you know and reach you can get it for this and reach in two you can play those games uh, you can not play CE, because I don't think if you haven't played that when you were a child in like 2001 to 2009, uh, you probably don't want to play it now. <laughs> but like 2 and 3 and Reach, these are all really good games. Um, and uh, this one in particular. So that's all I have to say about that. And we should move on to what you recommended to me, Stephen. Yes, I recommended to you, again, the historical documentary star wars episode one the phantom menace this was a 99 yeah is that correct 99 mm -hmm. film um lucas's big return to the star wars franchise people had not had a star wars movie at this point for gosh almost 20 years close to 20 years and this was the big return lucas finally making good on his promise to have the middle trilogy a prequel trilogy and then question mark as a, originally it was supposed to then be a sequel trilogy but you know we talked a little bit about that already so with that i will turn it over to you to talk about star wars episode one the phantom menace yeah um you know it it's it's always funny to look at this movie now with all of hindsight in our favor and no, we all know what these movies are now but like i try to imagine what it would have been like to have been a star wars fan in 1999 getting ready for you know not only the the first star wars film in, in almost 20 years but like the prequel trilogy to these films that you hold in such high regard and so many people did too i mean these were like huge cultural icons of films um certainly here in america you ever seen have you ever seen that video where they interview people going into I, the premiere and then interview people coming out? I have seen it. It is the one place where you really get a feel for what this would have been like. <laughs> well, because, I mean, because this film is such a colossal failure. Like, it's such a colossal failure on a level that I, I can't even think of many films to compare it to. You know, it's not just, like, a disappointment. It's not like it just doesn't live up to expectations. Like, this film is just awful. It's so bad. You know, it's not like... And it's not... I'm going to keep bringing this up because it still bothers me to this day. But it's not awful in the way people say the Disney Star Wars films are awful. You know, where they'll, where they'll, where they'll have, like, a five-hour five video talking about, like, three major plot holes and then say they don't like the characters or whatever, right? Like, these films are so poorly made. They're so bad. There's like so many things to look at here and just be like, what? It's kind of unfathomable. They're, they're, it's, it's almost unwatchable. And it feels at points like the film is trying to make itself purposefully unwatchable with how many like annoying characters and set pieces and like effects are just thrown at you left and right. And yet somehow, despite all of those annoying things the film also manages to be simultaneously like really boring <laughs> like not as much as the second film the second film is super boring without the annoying stuff 
Because I will say this about the annoying stuff. At least it catches your attention, <laughs> you know? The second film doesn't really do that. But, but this movie, like... And it's crazy, because, I mean... There, oh, there's... Every time I, I, like, move on from a point, I just remember something. There's literally... It's, it's, it's infinite, the amount of bad things that are in this movie. And I will say this, like, you think... First of all, this is such a major event, not just because it's a new Star Wars film, and not just because it's a prequel, whatever. Like, Lucas retitled the original films in preparation for these. The, the, the original films were, were altered to go along with these films, you know? These are, like, supposed to be such a big deal. One and of those alterations being injecting equally bad CGI. That's true. Well, at least that way. There's always that element in Star Wars. Yeah, you know? now there's a consistent through line. Yeah, just terrible, obnoxious CGI. And, like, which is all over this movie. And, of course, I don't know how bad it would have been then. I mean, it definitely wouldn't have looked as bad to people then, though it was certainly still undeniably intrusive, like, how much of it there is. But, like, looking at it now, too, oh, my God. It's aged so badly. There are entire fight sequences where the entire battle is made up of CGI characters, and it looks horrendous. Like, maybe it looked better then, though still, it ain't great. Uh, though in credit, there are some practical effects, but they're always in the background. Um, pretty much everyone I can remember seeing was kind of like a background character or something, um, which is great. Yeah, and I mean, you know... At this point, everybody knows the history and what happened in these films, uh, or with these films. And, you know, Lucas got full creative control. Um, and when you watch behind-the-scenes footage, you can tell a lot of other people weren't exactly on board with it, but no one was going to tell them no. And it just kind of turned into this. And to give credit in whatever way I can, um, I do think that Lucas had an interesting vision for these prequels that he doesn't often get credit for. Um, for one thing, I think it's very interesting to base the prequels on the villain, basically guaranteeing a bad ending to the prequel trilogy. I mean, it would have happened regardless, because you know going into the next three films that, you know, the, the, the dark side has risen and the empire has risen. So that was bound to happen. But, but no, we focus on the tragedy in these three films. Um, it's, there, there isn't really um, a positive ending there is to this film but it gets worse and worse as it goes along which i think is interesting and also um the political ramifications are also an interesting idea that he had when you look at the original three films um you can tell that the empire is essentially a fascist empire based off of the nazis the the enemies are literally called stormtroopers um and in these prequels they continue with that concept um looking at how sort of democracies can fall to fascism, uh, which even starts in this film. There's a lot of these um, scenes of sp literal space politics where people are floating around on a floating, um, floating, uh, in a floating parliament, floating parliament seats. Uh, and we see as, um, as uh, one character begins his, uh, his ascent to attempt to um, turn himself into a dictator through democratic means. 
this is all like, I genuinely think this is an interesting idea and I don't think people give it credit. And I think the reason they don't give it credit for being an interesting idea is because it's just so badly communicated and it's so drab. And these films do nothing to get you invested in this. Like there are so many scenes of like political deliberations where people are just sitting around and it's like, and it's Star Wars, you know? Like, you want there to be so much more. And the actual A plot is definitely more action-packed and interesting in comparison. But even that sucks. So how are you supposed to allow yourself the time to settle down into these quieter, more thoughty, um, political B plots when the A plot sucks too? <laughs> it's like, and that's the main problem, is that... The film has all of these ideas in it, and because Lucas had full creative control, the ideas don't really get muddled. It is very direct in the story and ideas it's trying to communicate, though some of those ideas are worse than others. But despite that, it's so bad. <laughs> like, the execution of it is so bad. The acting is so bad. The visuals are so bad. And, like, that it doesn't even really matter that the story might have had an interesting or might have had a chance at being interesting with a more competent directing team. Yeah, and it's like, it's hard to find a redeeming quality, truly. I mean, like, the pod racing scene is kind of fun. And I know... You know, there is a general consensus that some of the lightsaber duels in these prequel trilogies, which became much heavier than they ever had been, um, are overly long and a little showy. And I, I agree, but I still enjoy watching them for the most part. The fight with Maul, the main bad guy of the film, who just hilarious to me that Lucas created this character to die immediately. <laughs> Although he didn't end up dying because he got rebirthed in the canon, basically. But, um, like, that I actually do enjoy. But other than that, it's like, gosh, as you mentioned, like, even Ewan McGregor here, who I love his portrayal of Obi-Wan. I think his portrayal of Obi-Wan is incredible in these first films. Even him in this one, it's just... He has such a side role in this movie that it's like he doesn't even really have a chance to even shine. So you can't even say that he is a, you know, light in the dark here. And Liam Neeson is doing nothing to help his case either. And then you have, obviously, Jar Jar, who everyone knows. Um, it, it's hard. It's hard to talk about this film because there's so much surrounding it. Right. I mean, so many of these people basically brought themselves to ruin because of what the fan base did after this film. Um, especially when I think of Jake and when I think of the actor who played Jar Jar. Uh, but, you know, that aside, just looking at them in this film, it's just so hard <laughs> to find any redeeming quality. And I don't put it all entirely on them. Um, although this one I would say maybe a little more so than the ones following. But a lot of it, I mean, if you watch behind-the-scenes material, it's like Lucas is not helping any of these actors and not giving them any direction either. So it's not like they're being guided in any way, shape, or form. So 
it's hard to even say it's entirely all on them. Well, and the script is also so bad. Oh, the script is just absolutely... The exposition and dialogue is just atrocious. I mean, Darth Vader says yippee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Multiple just... times. That's like his catchphrase in this film. Yeah. Well, Now that's what I call pod racing. Like, it's like... And I did want to mention, by the way, what happened to these actors, because I think it's disgusting. Like, you look at... This film is terrible, right? But, like, Star Wars fans are are even worse, okay? Like, it's just a movie, okay? Like, it's a terrible movie, but it doesn't ruin Star Wars. It doesn't... And even if it did, it wouldn't justify going after the actors or anybody. But, like, it, it doesn't. It just exists and it's bad, you know? Now... Lucas did try to ruin the trilogy by uh, essentially making new versions of them and making it so that you couldn't get your hands on the original ones. Maybe that ruined Star Wars, I guess. But this film's existence doesn't. That being said, though, it's like... And, and I, I especially feel bad for the kid. That's just unbelievable. Like, he's a kid. Like, and yeah, he's bad in the movie. But he's a child actor who is clearly reading a terrible script with no direction from George Lucas. Okay. It's like, what do you expect? You know, it's like, it's not his fault. But anyway, um, I also just want to say, like, there are some great actors in here. And I think Liam Neeson, you know, is obviously a great actor. And I think that his performance brings a little bit more emotion than other people do in the movie. It's not saying really anything, but he kind of, kind of does. He has some good facial expressions, but like these actors have nothing to work with. You know, these characters are supposed to be solemn and, you know, wise. And that's their entire character. And so many characters in the film are basically just that. So you just have a bunch of, like, wooden characters with no interesting personality traits or quirks whatsoever. Just, and we're just following them the whole time. And so, you know, that those quirky characters are left to side characters like Jar Jar and even Anakin to an extent. And, uh... We all know how that went. So, you know, you're forced to try to empathize and care about the leads, but they're so dull. They're just so dull. And, and like, <laughs> Queen Amidala and Padme. That I... The acting is bad in general in, in, in this film. But, um, but Padme. Uh, and the, uh, and the, um, the decoy, whatever, right? Oh, spoiler. Like these, the the acting from these from these these characters here is abysmal. It's so bad. It's like they're also doing the wooden "I don't care" kind of thing with every line that they make, but they're not even doing it convincingly. And it's like pretty hard to watch in some of these scenes, especially since a lot of their scenes are like these sort of deliberation scenes, you know, where they're just sitting around and talking, but like they're not even talking in a way that sounds natural. Um, I really can't, yeah, I can't still, you can't overstate how bad to me. the acting is. I was just going to say, it's still wild to me that those are Natalie Portman and Kira Knightley. <laughs> Kira Knightley, I didn't even know that. I know it was Natalie Portman was one of them, yeah. Well, but that's the thing, right? That has to prove that it was like a top-down problem, you know? Like, there are so many talented actors in this film, and, like, none of them give great performances. So it's like, how could you possibly blame them at that point? That doesn't just happen accidentally. Like, something was amiss here. Um, and it is very clearly yeah, like a combination Greg of the Proops. script and directing. 
Greg, Greg Proops is in this film of Who's Line fame. He's the announcer for the pod race. <laughs> <laughs> the two-headed alien. Oh, yes, that's right. That, I did not know that. Well, okay. And announces the pod race. Yeah, and they're yeah, like there's a just radio so announcer. much like that. Yeah, there's just so much like that. He like interjected so many characters that are just like bad comic relief. And you just look at that and you're like, what is this? Like how... And th the funniest part to me is that he, like, tries to rec retroactively cover it up. Like, he always, whenever people ask him about it, he always espouses, like, well, the Star Wars films were always for kids. And it's like, yeah, I'm, at some point that's true, but I wouldn't consider the original trilogy Star Wars to be children's films. Right? Like, obviously, kids were entirely into Star Wars. But none of but none of those films were played down to children, and Phantom Menace feels like it's played down to children, but not in a way that I even think kids would find amusing or funny. Well, no, because you also have all of like the politics of the movie, <laughs> right? Because like... most of the film is just like dry politics, like them sitting in a room. And it's, yeah, it it's like. I will say this, uh, when you compare this to the second film, which upon rewatching this movie, and I'll have to rewatch all of these, they're all really bad. No, the third one is not much better, <laughs> but they're all really bad. But, you know, the thing that many, the reason many people will say this is the worst is because this is like the most annoying one, which is definitely true. This is definitely the most annoying one. Um, but even with that said, there are qualities about this film that, are better in this one than at least in the next two. There are some. And one of them is the actual lightsaber battles. Now, most of them are just as drab and um, choreographed as later ones. And I don't care for them doing flips and a bunch of random crap while they're fighting with lightsabers because it just, you don't actually feel the intensity or, or the rage. Or that scene, that scene in the third one where they basically just like swing their lightsabers at each other. Yeah, with the General Grievous where he comes and he goes, <laughs> you know, no, no, no. It's like, no, no. I'm talking about Anakin and Obi-Wan are in that room on uh, Mustafar. And there's literally a shot of them just like swinging the swords, like in oh. front of each other, like back and forth. Well, that too. Well, but that, I will say, though, to this film's credit, the Darth Maul fight feels the least like that of any prequel lightsaber fight that I can think of. There is still a lot of it. And there are a lot of moments where characters will, like, spin around just leaving their back exposed for moments. And there's no reason for them to do it. Which is mainly what I don't like about the choreography is that, like, they do so many things that don't make sense for them to do. And, like, the other character will just wait and let them do it. It's very lame. But... There are moments in the Darth Maul fight that I think are very good at adding some intensity and fury to the fight. Um, there's a sequence where um, Obi-Wan is, like, locked behind this laser door, and he's, like, pumping himself up to jump in and come in because he's mad about something that just happened. Right. Like, in a lot of moments like that, like, you do feel some rage and some fire there, and I still don't think it's enough. I still think overall the fight's, like, kind of just okay. But, again, when you compare it to later films there's a little bit more going on there. Um, but like, other than that, there are a lot of ways that do kind of make me think this is the worst. Uh, the second one's probably harder to watch, but 
which I guess makes it worse. But God, this movie's just packed with so many annoying things. You did mention Jar Jar, but um, like every side character that you meet in this film is just annoying and awful. It's not just Jar Jar. He's just the worst because he's there a lot. And by the way, his introduction in this film, he just kind of like shows up and then he's just there, which happens with a lot of stuff, I guess. The pacing of the movie is not very good either. But anyway, um, you'll meet like tons of side characters in this film. And it, it, it seems like it's trying to be like this fun revolving door of new fun characters and new fun adventures. But none of it is fun. Uh, and it, it becomes very grating very fast. Uh, though Jar Jar does kind of remain the worst because there's this entire like Gungan army, you know. And the entire Gungan army is like made out to look like complete idiots and like they're bad at fighting and it's just very very stupid uh the the entire like battle sequence that they take pl- they take part in there's so many like dumb moments that feel like they're supposed to be funny but there's not a single joke in this film that lands um so that definitely doesn't help um there's one other thing I was thinking of, but I think I've lost it, so it's whatever. But the, the point is, there's a lot of this in this movie. It's like, And it's like, yeah, right? Like, you can say, okay, well, that was for kids. But like you said, so much of this movie clearly isn't for kids that you realize, like, you don't need to just add dumb characters to make an otherwise really boring and, like, relatively adult movie appeal to kids. You can just make it, like, fun. Like, like Empire Strikes Back is a very dark film, you know? But kids can like that movie because it's a very fun movie with easy-to-identify-with lead characters. This movie doesn't have any of that. It just has annoying, cartoonish characters who are annoying. Um, oh, the thing I, I, I thought of that I forgot. This movie has a lot of racism in it. <laughs> like, the, the worst offender by far is... Um, one of the lead villain characters, kind of. I don't know their names, but it's like this alien race. And they're basically just horrible, horrible stereotypes of Asian people. They have, like, really bad stereotypical Asian accents. And, like, they don't speak English very well. And it's like, there are scenes where you just listen to them talk to each other for, like, a while. And it's, like, so bad. (laughs) I have heard people say as well that Jar Jar is also a racist caricature, but that's not really my place because I I wasn't able to pick up on it, but maybe I just missed it. But these characters, though, oh my god. (laughs) Like, it's bad. And also another very annoying aspect, even apart from the racism, it's it's, it's bad for both reasons. Yeah, it was just oh, Newt Gunray is one of the characters you're talking about. Newt Gunray. Yep, Newt Gunray. The Nemoidians. Ah. They're just uh very blatant Asian racist stereotypes, which is just really great. Really helps. Um I guess we could probably wrap it up, but the one thing I do want to mention is actually I did think of one uh feature here that is a shining light and that's um the soundtrack is still incredible oh yeah the soundtrack is just a banger i mean really the only thing that saves this film at all (laughs) 
I meant to mention that the soundtrack is amazing. And there are a lot, it's like, unlike the new films, which, you know, they have great soundtracks, but it's just a lot of rehash stuff. There's nothing that sticks out. There's so many memorable, like, tunes in the soundtrack here. And they add so much. This movie would actually straight up be unwatchable without the John Williams soundtrack. (laughs) But it is really good. And I also meant, meant to mention that because I would say it's like the redeeming factor. It is the sole redeeming factor of this film. Okay, so you want to wrap it up? Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, you can start. That's right. It's supposed to be me because you recommended it. Right. Um, yeah, so uh, aside from that one redeeming factor of the amazing soundtrack, and it is amazing, uh, this film is pretty much pretty much abominable. I mean, it's it's really, really bad. And it's... It's bad in a way that is kind of amazing. Uh, not not to watch, but just conceptually. I mean, like, it's such a colossal train wreck failure of a movie that people will be talking about it forever. Um, you know, it's not a movie that's just, like, a lame disappointment that people will forget. This movie does, and th- this entire prequel trilogy does absolutely stand alongside the original trilogy in terms of, like, public consciousness. Because it's just such a train wreck that everybody knows about and, like, no one will ever forget. Um, and that is commendable. Not about the actual film, but it's just, it's, it's nice to have it. I like that these films exist so that they can be discussed, aside from the fact that people were harassed and actors were treated like shit and all that stuff, which is all awful, um, obviously. Uh, I would give the film a two. Um... I really feel like the only reason I'm not giving it a one is just because the soundtrack is so good. And also there were like a couple of moments of directing in the Darth Maul fight that I thought were nice. Uh, And the pod racing scene was like fine. Um, (laughs) Otherwise though, this really is like an empty, uh, this film is like, um, it's like a landfill. Um, and maybe if you sort through enough trash, you might find something that was okay, but it really is devoid, utterly devoid of quality on almost every level. And it's kind of appalling. Um, you know, the only thing looking back on it that makes it watchable is that it's not quite as boring as the second film. (laughs) Um, but other than that, it really is just just terrible. I, I don't recommend it. I don't think this is a film to watch uh, because it's so bad that it's funny. Though it is interesting to watch for that reason, just because of how bad it is. But honestly, you know, there are, with how many videos and like the Mr. Plinkett reviews and all these things that are out there discussing this film and how much of a train wreck it is, you can honestly just watch that and you'll have enough to think about and talk about without having to actually sit through this movie, which I don't really think is worth doing. Um, so I don't recommend it. Yeah, one thing we didn't even really talk about, I'm thinking about it, it's like you alluded to it a little bit with that kind of final conflict between the Gungans and all of the Confederate droids. But like the climax of this movie is just so lame too. Like other than the Darth Maul stuff... There's some interest there, but like the whole Anakin just blowing up a big ship and it was like one ship, I guess, that controlled everything. Like that stuff was just so nothing. Like it wasn't exciting to watch. It was pretty boring. And then the land stuff with the Gungans was just like a mess. You know, it was, you kind of mentioned it, but 
I will say that one thing that Lucas always did well was world build. I mean, there is an incredible world in Star Wars. Now, I think the prequels definitely took it maybe a little too far, but this laid the groundwork for some conceptually very interesting stuff, especially as you mentioned about, like, you know, a republic transforming into an empire. So, like, that groundwork. Generally, I think the prequels, although they do follow Anakin, I actually think they're more interesting to look at from Palpatine's perspective. Like, as Palpatine kind of rises up and becomes the Emperor, spoiler alert, I guess. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of stuff here that's really conceptually interesting. And actually, like, I feel like everything around the films, but not the films themselves, are really good. Like the Clone Wars, Jendi Tartakovsky stuff, the Clone Wars show, then that was developed. A lot of the novelization of this time frame, a lot of the video games of this time frame were just all really interesting, but this is not at all. It is the most uninteresting thing. Not as uninteresting as two, but very uninteresting. As you mentioned, like, and only because of that, and only because for some reason I can't stop watching this thing, I'm going to give it a three to be nice. Because I would give two a one, and I want them to be separated enough. Because two is just so god-awful. It's like hard to even watch. This one is hard to watch, too. It is incredibly annoying. But after a while, it kind of becomes funny in a really sadistic way so i like going back to it and watching it because of that and then just like generally as like a time piece like it just as like a shining example of what full creative control can actually mean and lead to it's just so it, what a thing you know i definitely don't recommend it like don't go watch it again 100 percent, stay away but you know what can you say? It's just such a weird thing that exists. I mean, that is, I will say that is the best thing about it is as like, it's a timepiece. And this is the most interesting of the first three films, I think as like, as that, you know, looking at it, like as a cultural event, this is definitely the most interesting one. The next two were like trying to pick up the pieces and failing by the way, but that's what they were doing. <laughs> and that, yeah, that, that makes it something. Um, so there you go. It's good because it's bad. And uh, <laughs> with that said, do you want to move into the recommendations uh, for this week? Let's do it. All right. Well, I guess that I uh, will go first. Um, okay. I am recommending you um, an album. The album is called Cutie Marks and the Things That Bind Us. This is an album by uh, Violet Pony. And yes, it is. Another My Little Pony fan album, which was uh, not something that I thought I was going to do, uh, but this album is new, um, and it is, uh, I'm not allowed to say that, actually, given our rules. Well, anyway, um, this album exists, and it is an album by Violet Pony, and it is her 50, I don't know, 13th, 15th, 14th, 20th album, I don't know, um, in the series of many. And uh, that is my recommendation to you. Okay. I am going to recommend to you also an album. This is a 2014 album. And it was the first 
major record by the one, the only Riff Raft. This is Neon Icon. That is all I will say about it. All right. Well, we're going to have a good title for the next episode. Um, and thank you, everyone, for watching. As always, um, we are on CastBox and on YouTube. So if you are listening to us on YouTube, uh, you can find us in CastBox. I usually put the link in the description to every video, but of course, we're Get Wrecked on CastBox. You can download us on your phone and listen to us on the go. Um, I try to get the episodes up onto CastBox in an audio format quickly after we stream them. And if you are listening on CastBox, you can find us on YouTube uh, at the YouTube channel Casting404. Um, we stream these live every time we do them, and you can come hang out in the chat. And if you are super lucky, we will respond to your comment. But you have to be super lucky. You have to win the lottery. Um, and I think that's all I usually say. Yeah, like always, thank you everyone for tuning in. We appreciate it. Yeah, and I guess that's it. There's a lot more comments than normal, so I'm looking through them to see if anyone is deserving of the lottery win of getting responded to on uh, Get Wrecked. I will respond to this. Um, I don't know what the context of this was, but Pova1002 mentioned it's like that one Styx album, Kilroy Was Here. Uh, I think this is a reference to the Nemoidians. <laughs> Because if you look at them, I think they look like the robot, uh, Mr. Roboto uh, from Killboy, Kilroy was here. Am I right? I'm looking this up. Um, yes, uh, they do actually somewhat look like the robots on the Kilroy was here album cover. Um, well, there you go. <laughs> Do you want to select anyone? Uh, well, I just see there, and I definitely agree that basically I just wish I could blow up and then act like I don't know nobody. Exactly. So uh, with that, those were our thoughts. Those were our recommendations. Get wrecked.